I remember vividly, very vividly, the time I saw a severely nearsighted kid get her first glasses. Precious little girl in our church, precious little girl in our church was almost legally blind because she was so nearsighted. She, she really could not see much past the end of her own arm. Uh, trees were blobs, landscapes were just muddy messes. People who spoke to her kind of came to her at like disembodied heads is how they appeared. Um, and, then, and then she got the glasses. And suddenly everything was visible. In her little toddler voice, I'll never forget this, she kept saying over and over, I see, I see, I see. It was, it was majestic, it was, it was magical. Spiritually, her, her story is the story of us all, right? We see through a smeary, darkened glass. We don't, we don't know that we can't see. We, we, we think this muddiness is real vision. The people around us tell us so, in fact. They talk about how enlightened we are, seeing no further than the short reach of our own lives here on this earth. But then, then we open the Bible, right? We, 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 we put on the lenses of God's word, and suddenly everything is clear. Things are thrown into stark relief. We, we cry out, I see, I, I see. And that is precisely what happens to Christians who read 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This chapter pulls us out of our default nearsightedness. Let, let me put it this way. This chapter changes the quality of our lives. Let, let me show you. Open your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and let's read verses 1 through 11. If any of you has a legal dispute against another, do you dare go to court before the unrighteous, not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels, not to mention ordinary matters? So if you have cases pertaining to this life, do you select those who have no standing in the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Can it be there's not one wise person among you who's able to arbitrate between his brothers? Instead, believer goes to court against believer, and that before unbelievers. Therefore, to have legal disputes against one another is already a moral failure for you. Why not rather put up with injustice? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you act unjustly and cheat, and you do this to believers. Don't you know the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. Not, no sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or anyone practicing homosexuality, no thieves, Greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's stop there. As you'll see in our notes, um, you got a bulletin when you came in. Open it up. Look on the left side. You'll see in our notes these verses detail the folly of short-sightedness. The folly of short-sightedness. The first big idea is we should not go to court against Christians, period. When we do so, we are being very short-sighted indeed. The, the verbiage is really telling. Folks, there were many words the apostle could have used for a court case, but look, look what he did. He selected pragma. It's a, it's a generic word. Uh, in German, it's dienz. Uh, it's, it's just something normal, even something trivial. It's the basis of our word pragmatic. By contrast, do you dare is a very bold Greek word. Tolmao uh, is a, it's a strong, aggressive word. In fact, it's a word that can be either positive or negative depending on the context, right? But we look at the context here, and it is obviously negative. It implies insolence and rebellion. One more thing I want you to note about the verbiage. The sentence order is different 
in Greek than in our English. Tolmao is actually, tolmao is actually the first word of the sentence. This makes it a really forceful start. It's a, it's a thunderous, do you dare, ringing down from God. That's how the sentence is written. These are words of shock and betrayal. God cannot countenance the fact that Christians are suing Christians over what things that are in an eternal sense trivial. These are trivial little matters. The following verses explain why this is so shockingly short-sighted. First thing, verse 2 says, Christians shouldn't be seeking judgment against each other in pagan courts because Christians, or at least some of them, are going to judge the nations in Messiah's kingdom. The, the coming reign of Jesus is a massive theme that looms over this whole text. You'll see it. It comes up repeatedly through this chapter. And Paul points out that the redeemed are going to have judgment roles in that millennial kingdom. Uh, Revelation 3.21 is one of many statements about this. Let's, let's uh, look at this. Revelation 3.21, the victor. I will give him the right to sit with me, Jesus is speaking, to sit with me on my throne, just as I also won the victory and sat down with my father on his throne. In the kingdom, it appears that while all Christians will be citizens of Jesus' reign, those who overcome in this life, the victors, they're gonna have judgment responsibilities. The victorious disciples of Jesus will have legal power over the countries of the world as they stand before Jesus' throne. In light of that, doesn't your lawsuit seem rather trivial? Isn't it unseemly, even petty, to sue a fellow judge? Here, think about it this way. Think about it this way. Suppose your mommy <clears throat> gets two gingerbread cookies uh, from the German bakery in your town and brings them home for you and your little brother, okay? Just hypothetically, a story from your childhood, <clears throat> maybe mine, um, how many of you, like me, grew up with a German bakery in your town? Any of you grew up with a German bakery in your hometown? You poor, sad other people. It, it's awesome. It is awesome. Okay, so mommy comes home with your favorite thing in the world, gingerbread cookies. Two of them, they were a day old. They were on sale, but she grabbed them, and she brings them home for your brother. And while you're outside playing, your stinking, evil, horrible little brother <laughs> eats both cookies. And in your shock and anger, you go, let's just suppose you go to your dad. And you go to dad to complain about your brother. But before you, can, before you can say a word, your father looks at you and says, oh, hey, listen, I was talking to your mom about gingerbread cookies. I know how much you love them. I had some extra money. I ordered 10 dozen, 10 dozen gingerbread cookies. I want you to take them out in the neighborhood. They'll be arriving tomorrow, uh, fresh, hot. Take them out in the neighborhood, and you just share with them however you want. Give them to all your friends. Share with everybody. Okay, that's the scenario. You got the scenario? Now, in light of that scenario, which of these two options are you more likely to take? I want you to just choose. You lean more toward one of these than the other. Choose one of these two. Option number one, you go and you, you still lament to your dad about your brother, but mainly you focus on the huge number of cookies you have to come, right? Option one. Option two, you go out to the kids in the neighborhood and you trash your brother and you ask them to help you get revenge. <laughs> one or two, which are you? Yeah, one. I was two. <clears throat> and that second option is exactly what we're doing when we take our Christian brethren to court. You have amazing opportunities ahead. Your dozens of cookies are certain. By the way, there's one phrase in the text that lets you know this is certain. Do you see how the sentence starts, don't you know this is really cool. That phrase has appeared already in 1 Corinthians. It was in chapter 3, 16, chapter 5, verse 6. It's gonna appear again. It appears in chapter 9, 13, and chapter 9, 24. But get, get this. That phrase, don't you know, appears six times just in chapter 6. Six times in this chapter. It's a, it's, it's a rather 
shocking and sarcastic way of saying, this is something certain. Everybody knows this. You should know this. By the way, outside of 1 Corinthians, this phrase, this construction, don't you know, it's only used three times in the entire rest of the Bible. In, in some sense, this is the most shocked and angry chapter in the entire Bible. You know this, or you should know this. Christians are going to distribute judgment to the world. So quit suing your fellow judges. We also must sue other Christians because we will judge fallen angels. You see verse 3? That's what it declares. And it starts with another oida statement. Don't you know that we will judge angels? Um, 2 Peter and Jude talk about how demonic fallen angels are, are set aside for judgment. Uh, 2 Peter 2. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, and he goes on, but his point is not germane for us today. Point is demons face certain judgment to come. And here, Paul reveals that judgment will be performed by humans. Christians will judge these incredibly powerful spiritual beings. Given that future, does it really make sense for you to file a tort against your Christian brother because you slipped on his sidewalk? We mustn't haul other Christians off to worldly courts because it's shameful to be so petty. That's, that's the idea at the end of verse 3 through verse 7. Ordinary matters is biatikos. Biatikos means anything found in the ordinary course of life, like people who don't put more toilet paper on after they use the end of the roll. Or worse, don't you agree with me, Rick? People who put the roll on backwards. <laughs> right? All that stuff we go to court over is, is normal. It's part of People steal your cookies. They do. They wrong you. They cheat and they lie. It's horrible. God cares about you in your distress. But he doesn't agree that your best recourse is to head off to court with a grievance against another Christian. In fact, he says it is shameful. In, in, in fact, God shows that arbitration is better because it reflects redeemed community. That, that's one reason elders are set up in every church, so that, so that we've got this removed repository of wise brethren who can adjudicate uh, between us. And I'll tell you, it works. We have done this at this church. We, you know what we do most of the time? If we have two brethren coming to each other, we require them to hire a Christian arbitrator and it's amazing. It, worked. it has worked every single time. After all, even lost people know that a team should police its own locker room, right? Now, listen carefully. This is only for the redeemed community in Christ. With non-Christians, with companies, with governments, courts can be used. In fact, they should be used. Just think of Paul's life. When Paul was in Philippi, and he was badly wronged. And the magistrates wanted to kind of cover it up. Paul demanded, no, we're going out to court. This must be clearly spoken. Later in his life, he used the ultimate legal recourse of his day. He appealed to Caesar, right? And he, and he did so without any sense of compunction that that was wrong. It was the exact right thing to do. In each case, he's fighting persecution. So he brought legal action against non-Christian entities, specifically governments. But he did not sue his fellow Christians individually. Regarding our personal tangles with other Christians, verse 7 is the bottom line. Read it with me, would you please? You, you take the underlined text. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Thank you. And this, this contains our next definitive statement. By the way, you'll see this one atop the right side of our notes. Uh, look there. We should not embarrass God because it's better to suffer than to embarrass the Lord. It is better 
to suffer than embarrass the Lord. The, the old professor, the great old professor, H.A. Ironside, told a great story. Story really moved me, uh, about 100 years old now. It's from his childhood in Canada. And, and I liked it so much, I sent it to a couple of people, and our drama team took that story, and they, they illuminated it for us. I think they did a brilliant job. I want you to look and listen. This is a story from the life of, of Dr. Harry Ironside. L look and listen. When I was a little boy, my mother took me up to church in Toronto for a business meeting. Some difficulty arose between the brethren. I didn't recollect what, but I will never forget how they did as the apostle guides. At first, I was horrified to see men I esteemed and had been taught to respect, apparently so indignant with each other. I can remember one man springing to his feet, saying, I will put up with a good deal, but one thing I will not put up with, I will not allow you to put anything over on me. I will have my rights. An old Scottish brother, who was rather hard of hearing, stood up and said, What was that you said, brother? I didn't get that. I say, I will have my rights, said the man. But you did not mean that, did you? Your rights? If you had your rights, you'd be in hell, wouldn't you? And you are forgetting, aren't you, that Jesus didn't come to get his rights. He came to get his wrongs, and he got them. I can still see that man standing there for a moment, like one transfixed. And then the tears broke from his eyes, and he said, I have been all wrong. Handle it as you think best. And he sat down and put his face in his hands and sobbed before the Lord. Everything was settled in three minutes after that. When in this spirit, it is so easy to clear things up. When we bow before the Lord, he straightens all out. Amen. That is a truth our age hates to hear. To suffer rather than embarrass the Father. To be like Jesus who got his wrongs, not his rights. We hate to hear that. But I will tell you, anything else is foolish pride. When I, when I embarrass my heavenly father with my short-sightedness, I'll tell you this, it, it is always because I am more focused on my supposed current rights than my very real current and future blessings. Always. Now, look at that. Has anyone read that on social media lately? Nope. You know why? Because that is anathema to our age. Our zeitgeist is pride. And our pride is deadly to our current effectiveness. Look at this. A friend of mine recently wrote me this. He said, Wayne, it amazes me how my pride puts so much grit in the gears of my relationships with others. It's such a barrier to serving either my brethren in Christ or non-believers. Remember how the triune God commanded us in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, read with me. Verses 5 through 7. Again, you take the underlined text. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. By foregoing our rights, we serve God. By refusing normal suffering, we disobey, and in fact, we embarrass him. We should rather suffer than embarrass God. And verse eight gives us another reason why. Because we realize that the opposite is our norm. We realize the opposite is our norm. Years ago, old friend of mine, wonderful lady, she and I were building houses at the same time. Now, in her case, she hired a, a custom home builder who was a wonderful guy that went to the church that we all attended together back then. In my case, it was a tract home built by a huge company, although, although very quickly, I also was dealing with a believer because one week into the process, I was very blessed to get to lead this, um, the contractor who was the GC of our home. I got to lead him to faith in Jesus Christ. 
Very, very exciting. And he immediately started coming to that church as well. So it was really, really fun. Of course, with every construction project on this fallen planet, there were problems. My friend's house had a retaining wall, wasn't in the right place. My house had a crooked wall. It wasn't really that crooked. Um, but we handled these problems in really different ways. Here's what I did. I, I said something to, the, to my brother, the builder, and then I, I left it up to him and the Lord. My sister in Christ, how did her builder? She, how, she was there every day, measuring and pointing out problems and fighting over details. In, in fact, she tried quite frankly, to cheat him out of some of his profits. You know what she did? She claimed that his mistakes were harming her and she should have some compensation. And I added on the slide, if you doubt whether Christians do this, just go to lunch at some restaurant on Sunday, right? In the end, and this broke my friend, she, she repented beautifully at this. But at the end, this builder, our brother in Christ, gave her the keys and he said, I quote, I hope never to work with you again on anything ever. My builder handed me the keys and he said, oh, we never fixed that wall, did we? We'll, we'll get to that. And they did, six months later. <laughs> but you know what else happened? For the next seven years that they built in that area, crews just kept showing up at my house and doing things that needed done, that I never asked for. They put in, they put in extra attic vents when they realized there weren't enough. They, they came to my house and said, you know what, we found that when we are building this house, we, we haven't put enough trusses for the ceiling, and they came and redid my entire ceiling of my house for free. They showed up one day, I, they were in the back, and I said, Jana, what are they doing back there? They said, well, they, they, they noticed the other day your garage door was making a squeak as it went by, so they brought a whole new spring, they put a new spring in. After a storm, I went out in my backyard one morning, there was a crew already there putting the boards back up on my fence for me, all free, all I never asked for. The, the point is not to be kind to your brethren so you get free stuff. <laughs> the, the point is to know that our tendency is to act unjustly and, and in our pride and our selfishness, cheat people subconsciously, try to cheat. Knowing that's our tendency, we can then instead submit to God's spirit and choose to be harmed rather than trouble God's family. Amen? This is very important. And it's important not just because of rewards now, but because our future is at stake. Go back to verses 9 and 10. Don't you know the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, anyone practicing homosexuality, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. These verses echo again the don't you know, right? And the... And, and these verses often cause some confused head-scratching for Christians. Four options have been proposed. You and I were talking about this the other day, didn't you? Four options have been proposed. Number one is the reformed perseverance view. Number two is the walk-worthy view. You may want to take a picture of this or something. Number three is the present rewards view. And four is the future rewards view. Now, each of these is within Orthodox Christianity. And after careful study, you, you and I may disagree that's fine. I don't have space here to cover them all fully, but I'm going to give you some info so you can read plenty more on your own. In essence, here's what they say. Reformed perseverance says the unrighteous in our text, those are pretend Christians, and they never really believe. To them, inherit the kingdom is a synonym for enter it. You're not going to enter Jesus' kingdom. Uh, if you want to read about that, when you look up a theologian named Theodore Beza or a guy named R.C. Sproul. The walk-worthy view declares that Christians, what he's saying here is Christians should just stop living like what they used to be. 
there, there's not really a warning of loss here. It's just a reminder to live out who you are. Um, I, a lot of texts do say that. I don't think this one does, but a guy named Craig Glickman does a very nice job. You can look him up. Third view, present rewards says inheriting is not entering. Those are not the same, the same thing. What they say, and you can, R.T. Kendall is the, the speaker of this, they say the inheritance blessings are for now. And if you live unfaithfully, believers are gonna lose joy today. Fourth view is future rewards. Now they also note that inheriting does not, does not mean the same thing as entering. It refers to rewards. But they say these are future rewards that are lost at the bima, that's the judgment seat of Christ, and in the millennial kingdom. You can look up a guy named John Calvin or Charles Ryrie if you wanna investigate that one. I hold to the last view and I'll tell you why. It has one very strong argument going forth that none of the others have, they all lack this. It fits a repeated idea throughout 1 Corinthians. It seems to make the most sense in the book. Remember chapter three? Chapter three, verse 13. Each one's work will become obvious. For the day, he's talking about Christian judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he receives a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, it will be lost, but he will be saved. Yet, it will be like an escape through fire. It's ridiculous, it is a tragic thing, but a reality some Christians choose to live sinfully in this life. Like the Corinthians, those who do, those of us who practice the idiotic sins that Paul lists in chapter six are gonna face a loss of inheritance. Period. Just like them, we will lose inheritance. Again, end of the book. Paul uses very, very similar language. Chapter 15, verse 50. Brothers, I tell you this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and corruption cannot inherit incorruption. Now, Paul in chapter 15 is defending the truth that Christians are gonna receive perfect, resurrected, eternal bodies. Amen. I can't wait. And his language here shows that inherit cannot be the same thing as enter. You, you see, we know from Isaiah and a whole bunch of other prophets that there are going to be people in the millennial kingdom who will not be believers in Jesus. They will not have resurrected bodies because they're gonna be born during the kingdom. The Bible's very clear on this. They will literally enter the kingdom at birth, but they cannot share the Christian inheritance because they don't have creature-perfect bodies. Thus, 1 Corinthians is saying in all these different passages that we should not embarrass the Lord because our future is at stake. Bob Wilkin has a great last word on this. He says, believers whose lives proved to have been characterized by the fruit of the Spirit will possess the kingdom and reign in it as members of the King of Kings world government. However, believers whose Christian lives proved to have been characterized by deeds of the flesh will inherit neither possession of rulership in the coming, nor rulership in the coming kingdom, although they will be citizens of it. Close quote. Don't embarrass the Lord. Because, final thing, we remember that we're made different. That's the closing thought in verse 11 of the paragraph. The way believers used to be contrasts vividly with what Christ has done for them. They are different now. Therefore, they should behave differently. By the way, in my opinion, this is where the walk-worthy argument fits. Not in verses nine and 10, it fits here. You're different, therefore live differently. So to emphasize the point, God has Paul use three terms that specifically illuminate our, our forgiven status. He says washed. That almost certainly means a fancy theological term called regeneration. Paul uses the two words often together. Uh, regeneration is to be born again, to be made alive in, in Jesus. It's, by the way, it's a passive voice verb. It's not something you do. It's something that is done to you. Um, sanctified is the second term. Now, some of you will notice 
that Paul usually mentions sanctification after justification. He almost always, but here he reverses the order. And I think that's really important because, because it shows that this setting aside for holiness by God's election, it begins sanctifying you in conjunction with your justification. And justified means to be judicially declared clean, to, to be cleared before God. This is who you are, Christian. You are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified. Therefore, stop embarrassing God in how you live. Stop it. S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. Our highest calling is to bring glory to God because we are so grateful for what he has done. Anything that doesn't reflect well on Christ or his church must be avoided. In fact, the text is very specific about that. Read, read the next section, verse 12. Go there, verse 12. Uh, everything's permissible for me. Paul's quoting from a saying in Corinth. But not everything's helpful. Everything's permissible for me, but I will not be brought under control of anything. Food for the stomach, stomach for food. But God will do away with both of them. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? Should, should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture says the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual immorality. Every sin a person can commit is outside the body. On the contrary, the person who's sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Thus, we move from the folly of short-sightedness to the very long-term idea of glorifying God in my body. First big idea, we must choose what is best. Why? Because not everything's helpful. It, it, it appears here that Paul quotes three popular sayings that were going around the Corinthian church. The first one was, everything's permissible for me, which is technically true, since all New Testament Christians are freed from the Mosaic Covenant, but that doesn't mean we live like libertines. It, let me just ask you this. Is it permissible for you to eat all the Halloween candy you want in one night? Yes or no? Sure, it's permissible, I, at least until the food Nazis take total control. Um, you can have candy, Candy is not inherently evil. In fact, it, it can be a, a way to appreciate and taste and see the Lord is good and, and thank him for the sweetness of life. It can be fine. But is it helpful to eat a lot of candy? Yes or no? No, it's not. The doctors and the dentists around here are growling at me right now at the very thought. This applies across the board in our lives. So, for example, can you work all the time and never rest? Can you choose to do that if you wish? Sure you can. Is that helpful? Is that best? No, you will die, right? It, it, it will. It will kill you, which is why God gave the Sabbath principle in the first place. This represents one of the major differences between maturity and immaturity. The immature person always thinks about what he or she can get away with or get ahead with. The mature person thinks about what is most helpful. Paul quotes that same Corinthians saying again to make a second point. We must choose what is best because we tend to become controlled, don't we? In a, in a different series a while back, I read an article by Sarah Bessie. I received many letters about this. Um, so even if you remember the story, I want to repeat it. it. It bears repeating. Listen to Sarah Bessie. Uh, she says this. I had great reasonings about social drinking and moderation and our freedom in Christ. I grew to love the imagery of wine in Scripture, to see it as an emblem of the new city and of heavenly banquets. I like the sophistication of wine, the theology of wine, the metaphor of wine, the community of wine around the table. Without noticing, I was drinking almost every night now. It didn't bother me in the least. 
But I have learned that when you're walking with Jesus, the Holy Spirit's always up to something. I'm grateful, always grateful, how the Spirit isn't harsh or overwhelming, but rather how at the right time and in the right moment, we know it's time to change. We begin to sense that this thing that used to be okay is no longer okay. The thing that used to mean freedom has become bondage. The thing that used to signal joy has become a possibility of sorrow. The thing that used to mean nothing has become something, perhaps everything. At least that's what happened to me. I was fine. Everything was fine. And then I knew it wasn't going to be fine for much longer because a year ago I knew God wanted me to stop drinking. Sarah says, I began to be haunted by the writer of Hebrews who said, let us strip off every weight that slows us down and especially the sin that so easily trips us up and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. I began to, why, began to wonder why I was resisting throwing off the weight of alcohol. Why I was so determined to keep running my race with this habit that had begun to feel so heavy. I, in my soul, I could see the Holy Spirit practically jogging alongside of me every now and then to say, aren't you ready to put that heavy weight down yet? I think it's time you stop this one. It's your time to put it down. Looks to me like it's getting heavier the longer you hold on. No, no, I'm fine. I'll just keep going like this. Everyone else does. It's fine. We're all fine. I'm fine. Look how fine we all are. Pants, pants. Maybe I'll just sit down the side of the road for a while to catch my breath. Isn't that well done? Now, Sarah eventually stopped drinking. She thought it would be hard, but she actually found it a heavenly experience. She, she describes the aftermath. Listen to this. Sarah lives in London, by the way. She said, my older children asked me about it eventually. They said, Mom, you don't buy wine anymore, do you? I said, no, I don't. They both smiled, and one of them said, good, I'm glad. I don't think it's good for you. I'm glad you like Granny and Papa now, who are teetotalers. I said, me too. And then, Sarah addresses all of us who need to quit drinking or, or whatever other habit is controlling us, weighing us down. Listen to what she says. But if it feels like a weight, imagine how free you'll be when you lay it down. If you're sensing the invitation, it's not an invitation to deprivation. It's an invitation to abundance. I am concerned that many people I know are like Sarah. They are controlled by something. Please put that weight down and start enjoying the Lord. We must choose what is best because life is not mere material satisfaction. Um, that's the point when the apostle quotes the second saying from Corinth. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. That is a completely ridiculous materialist way of thinking. Mm. It was advanced by a very misguided Greek ethicist named Democritus. He lived a couple of hundred years before Paul. The, the materialist way of thinking sees nothing of quality in life. There, there's no soul. There, there's no real ethics. Everything is comprised of merely quantitative atomic combinations. But materialism has two massive problems. Please catch this. Number one, materialism is utterly unreasonable. It, is, um, it, it takes so much faith, much more than I will ever understand to be an atheist, to be a materialist. That's why, that's why macroevolution is so unbelievable. Let, let, let me show you. Uh, comedian Kellen Erskine, listen to him on this subject of, of materialism and macroevolution. My favorite animal is a penguin. I just, I just feel bad for that. Penguins are the reason why I don't completely believe in the theory of evolution. Because <laughs> yeah, evolution says that an animal will either die off or adapt comfortably to its environment I just don't think they belong in Antarctica. They seem cold. <laughs> like, go to the LA Zoo. They don't keep them in a freezer. They're on cement, and they're fine. <laughs> Every other animal in the South Pole has at least 15 inches of blubber or fur to keep it warm. You ever seen a penguin walk? They walk the same way you would if you were wearing cold, wet pants. 
This is completely true. Every year in Antarctica, penguins walk 80 miles round trip for food, if you believe Morgan Freeman. <laughs> now, here's where evolution gets shady. If these poor animals have been walking 80 miles every year for the past 10 million years, why don't they have knees yet? <laughs> Their wings haven't worked out for some reason. <laughs> Can they at least get some bendy legs? <laughs> Oh, golly, it's funny. Oh, so much material. material. Materialism is unreasonable. Number two, it always leads to life-harming sexual immorality. Always does. Just think it through. If everything is material, then there's no such thing as sexual sin. There's no such thing as pornography. There's no such thing as abuse or bestiality, not even rape. None of those are a problem because the logical conclusion of materialism is that whatever a person wants, they take. And the, and the strongest take everything. That's why it is so hilariously, tragically disingenuous for materialism worldview institutions to punish any sexual activity. Makes no sense at all. And that's why Paul goes into sexuality next in verse 14. Sexual harassment and all those other sins are indeed wrong, but they're wrong because God reasonably and lovingly says so. No, pers no person who thinks the body is for material pleasure has the moral authority to declare anything wrong. They have none. Glorifying God in my body means I choose what is best. It also includes our final big idea. Final big idea. We must remember whose we are. That, that toddler who had her nearsightedness corrected, she later told me her favorite thing about wearing her glasses. She told me this when she was two. I know which mom to follow to the store. <laughs> she could tell which way to go because she could finally make out her parents' path. Same occurs for us when we lengthen our sight and remember whose we are. We must remember because sexual immorality is incompatible with God. Listen again, verse 13. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Verse 15. Don't you know your bodies are a part of Christ's body? Should I take part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined a prostitute is one body with her? The scripture says to become one flesh, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Open your eyes to this. Sexual immorality is oil to the Christian living water. They, they just don't mix. In the first century, the materialists said that was, that was crazy. Everyone should just do whatever they pleased. Same thing in the 21st century. But it doesn't matter what people say. We know that we are God's, and, and we're not for anything else because he loves us. God is zealously jealous over us. All God's people said... Speaking of centuries, in the late first or early second century, there was a book written called The, the Shepherd of Hermes, um, of Hermas. Uh, we, we don't know who wrote it. Uh, not scripture, but an interesting book. Look, look what he said. I love this passage. Guard purity. Let no thought enter your heart about another man's wife or about fornication or about some such similar evil thing. For if this desire enters your heart, you will go wrong. And if anyone does this evil deed, he brings death on himself. So beware, have nothing to do with this desire, for where holiness lives, their lawlessness ought not to enter the heart. Where holiness lives. That's us, right? Remember? We're washed, sanctified, justified. Remember, remember whose we are, because sexual sins scar the body of Christ. Don't you know your bodies are part of Christ's body? Run from sexual immorality. And then the, the quote from Corinth, what they were saying, every sin a person commits outside the body. On the contrary, the person who's sexually immoral sins against his own body. This is marriage imagery here. We, we, we are joined as one body in Jesus, and thus any sexual immorality is actually an act of unfaithfulness. It's adultery. 
Proverbs describes this often, right? When you read Proverbs, you see sexual sin depicted as a trap. It's just waiting to ensnare someone's life, and I have watched it ruin so many lives. And while God forgives and he may release one from the trap, the scars remain and they cause lasting damage to the body of Jesus. Scars and damage that, quite frankly, won't be fully repaired until that coming kingdom. Thus Paul says, flee, run, keep on swimming. Do not pass go. Don't collect $200. Hop on the bus, Gus. Get yourself free. One of my friends recently wrote a great illustration, fly fishing buddy of mine. He said this, last month, My wife and I spent a week in the magnificent Rocky Mountains hiking, sightseeing, and yes, I fly fished. She likes to sit on the bank with a good book while my fly rod and I enjoy standing knee deep in a trout-filled mountain stream. As I approach a crystal clear alpine brook, I try to be quiet and hidden, no loud noises, no big splashes, no shadows of me or my rod on the water. These fish don't get many visitors and they spook easily. Once the trout realize danger is near, they dart for cover and lose their appetites for my beautifully tempting flies. He says this then, an effective response to danger is to run or swim away. When Paul addressed sexual misconduct within the Corinthian church, he made a simple directive, flee from sexual immorality. Moving away physically and emotionally is a simple and proven method of protecting our hearts. If a trout fails to dart away from a fisherman's lure, it might end up with a painful lip. If we fail to flee life's temptations, the outcome could be much worse. We must remember whose we are because our bodies are temples of the Spirit. That's what we learn in the final two verses, 19 and 20. Remember, remember, according to pagan thought, the temple was the very dwelling place of that God. Wherever a temple was built, that's where the God could be found. And that was the only place the God could be, could be contacted. The word for that was naos, what, what we translate sanctuary. Now, in pagan thought, the naos was a very limited place, the only place the deity could be worshipped and contacted. But remember this. This is awesome. The New Testament uses naos much differently. In fact, the New Testament uses naos in ways that are, frankly, scandalous to the Greco-Roman world. Look what God says. He says naos is the word he uses of Jesus' physical body. He is God. He is God. Naos is used of the universal church, all Christians of all times and places. It's used of individual Christians in what we just read in verse 19, and it's used of each local church as well. The third one's Paul's point here. Each Christian is, in fact, a living sanctuary. So, if you are a temple of the one true holy God, what kind of things should go on there? I asked a few friends of mine that question. Here's what they said really wise friends, they said this. I said, what, what should go on in your temple, in your naos? And they said, joy, thanksgiving, worship, hard work, health, quiet reflection, inspiration, beauty. Nice. And let me ask you, is that what fills your temple? Is that what fills your temple? Or is it somewhat filthy? with vermin. Pray with me about that. Let's pray. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters. And we confess to you that um, that our temples are not all they should be. Our souls and our bodies are not are not really what they, they should be as places to meet you and enjoy you and worship you and and delight in you where people can actually engage God. And so with my brethren, I come to you and I, I ask you to clean us out. I, I know it can hurt. I've read about the 
what you did in that temple in Jerusalem. But in all sincerity, we are up for it. We ask you to cleanse us. And Lord, I pray for um, anybody, anybody studying with me that, that isn't an house of God because they haven't trusted Jesus. Friend, listen, Jesus is fully God and man, just as he claimed. And he came here because he loves you. And he gave his life on a Roman cross. And he rose from the dead so that if you would trust him, if you would believe in him, you could be a citizen of his kingdom forever. He, you know how he puts it? He will come and dwell with you. You become a temple of God. But you have to trust him and him alone. I pray you do so right now. Let me ask this. Everybody's eyes are closed. They're praying. But if you prayed this morning to trust Jesus as your Savior, if you just prayed to, to believe in him, would you raise your hand? I just want to I just want to pray for you privately as you and I are good for you. Amen. Now let me ask this. If you thought of something specifically, let me put it this way, if the Holy Spirit brought to your mind something specifically that really does need to be cleansed out of your life, something biblical that is wrong, Raise your hand, would you? I just want to pray for you as well. What it is doesn't matter. Just raise your hand. Raise them up. Good. Amen. Father, I ask you to bless every one of these, the new Christians and all of us who need revitalization as your temple. Encourage and change us. In Jesus' name, amen.